Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, as we're going to consider verses 19 through 27 this evening. Now, if you have the audacity to raise your hand at this question, I'd be very interesting to see who you are. And so I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you would answer yes to this question. Have you ever knowingly and willingly, not accidentally, knowingly and willingly ever eaten a worm, a worm? Raise that hand. Okay. Now, I'm sure that for every one of you that's raised their hands, as you can see, my hand is raised too, there's more than likely a very unique and interesting story behind what led you to eat that worm. My story takes us all the way back to 1998 when I led a missions team from this church to the country of Malaysia. And there we were in one night of that month that we were there on the island of Borneo in what's known as Eastern Malaysia in a hut community off the Rajang River being warmly welcomed into the home of a small community of Malay. These people received us with open arms to the point that they prepared for us the best meal they could possibly prepare that night. And the way that we shared in that meal is we all sat in their community area in a big circle. All the plates of the food were placed in the middle on the floor. We were seated on the floor. A banana leaf, a large banana leaf was placed in front of us. And with our hands, the plates were passed and we put portions of each plate onto our banana leaf. And I looked over at one of the dishes, and it looked very familiar to me. It looked like fried cheese sticks. Now, by that time, it was weeks into the trip, and we were longing for what we would call familiar food or normal food. So my momentary excitement about what looked like deep-fried cheese sticks was quickly disappointed when I asked one of the locals, what exactly is this? And they described that they were deep-fried grub worms. And these grub worms were like the size of large caterpillars that we're familiar with here in Albuquerque. And so just like you would expect, they wet them, put them in some flour, deep-fry them, and boom, there you go. So as that plate was coming to me, I, I strategized, and I noticed that there was another plate of red chili paste. And I thought, okay, I think I can do this if I do this right. So I made sure that the red chili paste came to me first, and I, I loaded up. I do like hot chili, and if you've ever been to any parts of Asia, that is the origin of our green chili here in New Mexico. So uh, they have hot peppers there in Asia. So thank God these were so hot that I indulged in them, numbed my mouth to the point that when... I ate the cheese sticks, uh, the fried grub worms. The only experience that I can remember, not the taste, was that it burst in my mouth with like a liquid goo. <laughs> the heat had gooified that grub worm. That was the first time I've ever eaten a worm. That was back in 1998, and incidentally, that was the last time I have knowingly and willingly ate a worm. Why? Why did I not just let that plate pass from me? Well, because there's a principle, a very basic and first lesson of introductory cross-cultural Christian work, where you always eat what is served to you by the people. Why? It's to avoid unnecessarily offending the people, resulting in them closing up their hearts and their ears to you, because you're there to speak to them about the love and forgiveness of God. You see, you don't want to interact with them in such a way that they're looking to see, oh, are you going to enjoy it? How many of you have a grandma or even a mom that puts so much of her heart into her food? My mom is seated right over there. I'm looking right at her. 
And that woman puts all of herself into her meals that she prepares for her family. And one of the things that you can do to delight my mom is as you're eating, do a little noise making. Mm. Mom, this is so good. She smiles. It's like a warm verbal hug to her to affirm that she was able to clearly communicate her love for us in that meal. Well, oftentimes for people around the world, them making that meal or providing their best for you, they're, they're often looking at you intently to see if you're going to appreciate it, if you're going to enjoy it. You want to avoid offending them unnecessarily and perhaps evoking a response in them, either in their thoughts or even verbally, that would sound something like this. You've come all this way from far away, perhaps across the world, and you want me to consider swallowing your words and taking them to heart, and you won't even swallow our food that we served you? This practice of doing something you wouldn't conventionally do, you wouldn't normally do, but you're doing it for the sake of the people that you're there to share God's love with, is a practice that follows in the pattern of Jesus Christ in becoming incarnational. You see, Jesus became incarnational in his efforts to reach people with his love and his message of total forgiveness for all who would believe in him. Most of us are familiar with what the incarnation is. The incarnation refers to God becoming flesh. And when we consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God became a human. But not just any human, he became a male human. He became a man. But he didn't just become any man, he became a Jewish man. And not just any Jewish man, he became a carpenter. So we look at God coming into this world in the flesh, becoming a male Jewish blue-collar carpenter. And yet, Scripture tells us that he took it even further than that. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you how Jesus modeled not only becoming a Jewish carpenter, but becoming a slave. A slave to who? A slave to all mankind. This is what we read of Paul in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says to us as the church, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now that phrase can be a bit enigmatic, but let me explain to you what it means. To not consider it robbery to be equal with God means that he didn't think it's something that he was clutching and unwilling to let go. Rather, he chose to relinquish what we refer to as his prerogatives of deity. He unclutched them. The passage goes on to say that Jesus further made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So like Jesus and like Paul, we too are to go as far as absolutely necessary in adapting to the lives of the people that God sends us to share his love and his forgiveness with so that we might gain an opportunity and an open ear that the gospel might be heard by them. So let's again look to our text, 1 Corinthians 9. And if your eyes could just follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. However, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. Why? 
that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Then run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, a parable, a perishable evergreen wreath back in the day. But we... We for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So the title of our time together tonight is this. For the love of God, adapt. For the love of God, adapt. And in this passage, we find that God through Paul explains to us the will and the skill needed to adapt to communicating the love of God to others most effectively. So let's first consider the will. Now, if you're going to live this way, if you're going to have an attitude of willingness to become even as a slave to anyone God sends you to, you're going to have to want to actually live this way. The question is obvious. Why? The answer is found. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, my status in this world is not as a slave, I've yet willingly made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win the more. To win absolutely, positively, as many people as I can to life in Jesus Christ. This term win is very familiar to us. It's an athletic term that refers to a victory. But if some of you have an old King James Version... It uses the word gain because the same term win was also a financial term meaning to turn a profit. Your effort was worth it. There was gain that came from it. Why? Because any of us that know Paul know that he had an unwavering passion to see people come into relationship with Jesus Christ. He loved people. And he wanted them to be forgiven just as he had become forgiven in Christ. But he also knew that before we can win their hearts to Christ, we have to win their ears to hear and consider the gospel. We need to gain an audience. And he tells us how to do that. Paul's attitude was this. As I look out at those that don't yet know Christ, I owe it to them. To be as their slave to gain their ear. You see, he saw himself as a debtor to every unbeliever because he knew that he knew something they didn't know, but they needed to know it. In fact, this is how he articulated it to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. Those are two ends of the spectrum, folks. Here's another extreme both to wise and unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Always ready. Always adaptable. Furthermore, here, as we read, Paul declares that he's not living as one whose status is that of a slave. However, like we read of Jesus, he willingly made himself everyone's slave in an effort to gain their ear. Now, this caused Paul to sacrifice every 
non-essential aspect of living a godly life in hopes of leading the maximum number of people to hear the gospel. And so here's a principle for us from his life. Our love of God and for all mankind limits our liberties. You see, in Christ, we're now free. We don't have to keep the law in order to be right with God. We are forgiven in Christ by his blood. But even though we don't have to, Paul says, for the sake of those that I desire to reach, I'm willing to become as their slave. Now, this term slave was easily understood by this first century audience because slavery was very common. A large percentage of the Roman Empire's population were slaves. And he's willing to adapt in any way possible to reach whomever needed to be reached. Now, perhaps this begs a question in some of us. Am I suggesting that Scripture is saying that we're to compromise truth in order to gain an audience with unbelievers? Am I suggesting that we become sellouts to the truth? We all know what a sellout is, right? A sellout is one who compromises their integrity, their morality, their authenticity for personal benefit. Is Scripture calling us to be a sellout? Absolutely not. God in Scripture is not calling any of us to be sellouts, but rather He is calling all of us to go all out. Now, we know what it means to go all out, right? To go all out means that we're willing to do something with as much effort and self-sacrifice as possible to achieve a goal. And our goal is winning others to Jesus Christ. You see, selling out or compromising is when we set aside a truth that we must obey. And Paul never did that. And neither should we. But rather, going all out is when we set aside a freedom or a liberty. Something that we're free to do or not to do in an effort to adapt to the people that we're trying to reach. So going back to that worm. In Christ, I was absolutely 100% free not to have to eat that. But I ate it in hopes of gaining their heart and their ear so that when I shared with them the gospel of God, they would be more open to receiving him. Now, if even in going all out, even in laying ourselves down as someone's slave, if someone's offended by the truth of God's word and the message of the gospel that then becomes a problem between them and God. That's their problem. We're doing our best to help them with that problem, but at the end of the day, it's their problem. However, if anyone, anyone at the workplace, perhaps anyone under the roof of our home that doesn't yet know Christ, perhaps at school or in our neighborhood, if anyone is offended by some non-essential aspect of my life and relationship to God, then that, my friend, is my problem. And my problem has to be addressed. And how do we address it? We address it by entering their world. You see, I have some neighbors that are new to the neighborhood who recently suffered a loss. My approach to them is to walk softly around a broken heart. It would be very ill thought of if I did anything but remain sensitive to the soreness of their grieving hearts. And yet, if I have another neighbor who just had the birth of a child, I should then mirror that as well with enthusiasm for them. I'm simply trying to enter into their sorrows or their joys, simply trying to enter into their world. Why? Because, friend, I am and you are a debtor to those people. We are those who are compelled by the love of God and our fellow man and therefore should be willing to adapt 
to those around us that need to hear the gospel. Friend, this is not the job of the professionals. This isn't the job of the clergy. This is the opportunity and privilege of the church of Jesus Christ in its entirety. You don't have to do any of this. Rather, all of us get to do all of this. It's a wonderful privilege to represent Christ. So I want you to look at it this way. We are to have cultural agility for the sake of taking the gospel as far as it can possibly go in our lives and through our lives. Uh, In your mind's eye, consider the grace and power and effectiveness of an agile running back in the NFL. That man gets that ball, and he can cut, he can juke, he can spin, he can power through with great agility to maximize the furtherance of that pigskin toward that goal line. Think of the agility of a chef who can please the palates of a very wide variety of tastes and appetites because of their adaptability in a kitchen. So just take note, friend. God has a place in this for each and every one of us. You see, God never has ever represented himself on this earth through his people as a one-trick pony. So what's the model? The model we find in the life of Christ, in the life of Paul, and in the pages of Scripture is that we reach people differently with different methods. However, the message of the gospel never, ever changes. So, does this level of willingness to adapt to the degree of Jesus and Paul, does that describe me tonight? Does it describe you tonight? So we have to ask ourselves some very hard questions. Are we willing to set aside every personal preference every non-essential aspect, every convenience for us to increase, to maximize our ability to connect with those who are yet to be forgiven. If you are, then that's a sign that you're a very wise man or a wise woman. Scripture declares, Proverbs 11.30, he or she that wins souls is wise, wise. So look at it this way. Paul wisely made himself a slave to save. Paul wisely and willingly experienced pain to gain more souls for Christ. And Paul never did any of this to be a man pleaser, but he did all of it to be a man reacher. And that must be the pattern of our lives as well. So Paul is teaching and modeling for us that we gain an opportunity to be heard by our willingness to accommodate the people we're amongst in the hope of winning them to Jesus Christ. So Paul indeed did use different methods to reach different people. And now let's shift from consideration of the will to the skill. And that skill takes us to consider some of the ways in which he did adapt in order to reach others. The first we find in the first part of verse 20, the skill to adapt to the customs of others, the customs of others. So read with me, follow along. Verse 20, the first part, and to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. You see, Paul was originally culturally and socially a Jew. That was his starting point. And it was also perhaps his most familiar and comfortable environment in which to serve Jesus Christ. Now, like Paul, each and every one of us here are originally, culturally, and socially something. And so consider that Paul never separated himself from his Jewish heritage. And yet I find it interesting that Paul, a Jew, an incredibly pious Jew before even becoming a Christian had been so transformed by Jesus Christ that at the point of this writing, he refers 
to have to have become a Jew again. I, I had to return to what it was to be a Jew. He says, to the Jews, I once again became a Jew. That just shows you how radically Christ had changed him. And for our passage's sake, this specifically refers to perhaps a Jew ethnically and culturally. For our purposes, if God were to send us to another people group, we might say to the Romans, I became a Roman, or to the Canadians, I became a Canadian, or to the Mexicans, I became Mexican, or to the Manhattanites in the island in New York, I became a Manhattanite. How? We do this by adopting their cultural customs in hopes of connecting with them. So go back to food. If we go to Malaysia, we may have to eat grubworm in order to connect with the people. If, consider clothing, we're called to go to Cuba, then the men might have to go to the store and perhaps buy a nice fashionable Guayavera shirt. Those nice, crisp, clean, untucked shirts that a lot of Latin men wear, a lot of the older Latin men. Perhaps when it comes to activities, if God sends you to Italy... You might have to become proficient in bocce ball. Some of you are saying, what's bocce ball? That's the point. You'd have to learn what it is and then become familiar with it because they play bocce ball in Italy. Other parts of the world too, but definitely in Italy. That's where it's from. So we consider Paul becoming a Jew. That was his starting point. And you don't have to turn there, but I just want to read Paul's words in another part of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. Paul describes the starting point for any of us to be an effective transmitter of the gospel to those who don't yet know Christ that live within our circles. He says in that passage, Let each one remain upon salvation in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Don't start to strategize how to get out of being a slave. Rather, whether you can be made free or not, he says, rather, use it. What does it mean to be using being a slave? It means what we think it means. Use being a slave to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Other slaves or perhaps your very slave owner. Use it. So one thing that I was when at 19 years old, back in 1993, one thing I was when I became a believer in Jesus Christ at age 19 was a busser at a local New Mexican restaurant. And I had worked there for almost a year before as a non-Christian, an unbeliever, and then all of a sudden God radically got my attention. And some parts of that restaurant where previously I would scheme or strategize with coworkers on how to perhaps uh, deceive a customer in order to trick them into giving a double tip on a party that was larger than eight. In those same areas, I was now sharing Jesus Christ with those same coworkers, having repented from that theft. Those same areas of that restaurant where I had perhaps flirted with females trying to get their attention for unsavory purposes, I was now extending the gospel of Jesus Christ to them right there in the restaurant. Another thing I used to like to do as a brand new believer is, is playing basketball at gymnasiums or local parks it was a lot of fun. And now it was no longer just a place for pickup basketball, it was a place to convey the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ by talking to those that I would play basketball with. So we're all called to enter or re-enter the people's worlds that we're trying to reach. Now, for most of us, this principle is applied much closer to home. Let me give you another example. When I began dating the woman that I eventually married, back in 1996, we started dating I was trying to learn about her family, and I wasn't yet confident about her father's relationship with God. And so a few months into that dating relationship, he had to go into the hospital for a surgery. And that surgery required a number of days of recovery in that hospital. Well, it just so happened that that was the same week of the 1996 World Series. And it just so happened that my father-in-law was a fan of the New York Yankees from childhood. 
And so inasmuch as he was greatly disappointed and in some pain being there in that hospital, he was excited to watch the game on TV. But as most of you know, it's, it's not as fun when you're watching a game alone as it is when you're watching it with somebody else that's excited about it also. Well, truthfully, at the time, although I was an avid enthusiast in sports, I wasn't that much of a baseball fan. Wasn't even a Yankees fan yet. I'm a born-again Yankees fan now. You better believe that. And so I thought, he's there by himself. He's excited about this game. I'm going to go be excited with him. And for consecutive nights, I would sit there in that hospital with him as he recovered. Everybody else went home. They were tired from being there all throughout the day. And he and I watched the New York Yankees win that World Series. It just so happened, too, that the closing pitcher of the Yankees, that entire World Series, became the very MVP of the World Series and, interestingly enough, lived in the East Mountains here in the offseason because he was tied to the Dukes organization prior to going into the majors. And I just so happened to know him because he also attended Calvary Church. And so that was a point of contact with my father-in-law where he was like a giddy young boy when I would get him things that were signed by that closer. So all that to say was simply a matter of entering into his world. I discovered a touch point in order to gain entrance into his heart and hopefully to gain his ear. Let's now move to the second skill, the skill to adapt to the ceremonies of others. And we find that in the second part of verse 20, where we read, to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now, this under the law likely refers to those religiously dedicated Jews and or Jewish proselytes. A Jewish proselyte was a Gentile convert to Judaism. And these groups, both of them, religiously studied and kept the law of the old covenant. And Paul says, look, I'm saved. I'm new in Christ. I know without a doubt, I don't need to do any of that, but rather I'll put myself under the law right alongside them in order to gain their ear. This wasn't a violation of God's grace to do so. It was an act of love. Friend, I want you to consider this. As a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, we are free actually to practice ceremonies, to follow liturgies, to keep certain codes, not to gain forgiveness, but as an expression of love or worship or gratitude to God. But we are not at liberty to impose those on any other believers in a way that declares or even implies that any of those gray areas are required to know God or to be a loyal and vibrant believer in Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. We cannot make our preferences equal with God's program. We cannot make our convictions equal with God's commandments. They are simply our preferences or our expressions of love to God. How did Paul exemplify this as a believer in Jesus Christ? Real quickly in Acts chapter 16, Paul actually had Timothy circumcised for the sake of not offending the Jews that they were amongst in order to reach. You see, Timothy came from a mixed marriage. His father was Greek and his mother was a Jew. And he was considered by the Jews a half-breed. His mother was considered a traitor for not marrying a Jew. And Paul knew, man, if we go into that city and we're at the local uh, place to bathe, they're going to know that you're not one of them. So let's lay down what could otherwise be a hurdle or an obstacle for those people to see the cross of Christ clearly through our lives by just getting you circumcised. And folks, that's the testimony of a committed man. (laughs) He's an adult by this point, and he gets circumcised. Furthermore, in Centria, Paul took a Nazarite vow. We find that in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. And furthermore, in Jerusalem, Paul purified himself in a ceremonial bath as part of a temple ritual in Acts 21. Why? To go where the people were, to sidle up alongside them, to conduct himself in a way that didn't make them feel as if he wasn't willing to be one of them. Why? To talk 
to share the love of God, to share the message of the gospel. Paul never compromised truth as he did this, but he was always willing to accommodate neutral gray areas in order to gain their attention. You see, prior to Paul, formerly was compelled by the law. He felt he had to. Now that he knew he didn't have to, he wasn't compelled by the law. He was compelled by love, by love. Now, just a side note here. For some of you, this makes you feel a bit uneasy or uncomfortable because you think, okay, well, what are some of the things that I've stayed away from? You might come from some religious background and there might be some religious practices that you think, hmm, I wonder if this would qualify as me entering the world of perhaps a family member who's still religiously practicing those belief systems. Let me just say this. If you have any uneasiness of conscience as your brother in Christ, let me appeal to you, never violate your conscience. Never violate your conscience. If you're not at a place yet, and you might never be on this side of heaven, where you can do what Paul did in the way of going back to some of those ceremonial customs of wherever you came from, then this is what you do. You simply stand down. You tap out. You respectfully and lovingly excuse yourself. Don't put yourself in that environment. Now, I want us to skip to the fourth skill of adaptation. And I'm going to skip over a verse in order to return to it because we're going to spend the remainder of our time on that part. So I want us to skip to the first part of verse 22 where we see this third skill, the skill to adapt to the limitations of others. He says here, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. Now, what does that refer to? Well, there's speculation as to who exactly it refers to. In fact, it could refer to any of the following. It could refer to any group of people with overly sensitive consciences. Referred to in the book of Romans chapter 14 as some who perhaps esteem one day above other days or who have certain dietary restrictions. These might be people described as those who'd not yet realized or felt comfortable with Christ's forgiveness resulting in freedom from what we would know to be legalistic requirements. This might also be simply referring to people with high scruples. Those legalistically inclined people, we might call them hyper guardians or just rule keepers. This might also refer to people who are simply zealous for their own religious origin, whether that be Judaism or Islam or something that they came out of and they take pride in that practice and in that level of devotion. Might also, interestingly enough, refer to the lower educated of the population or even those people of low comprehension of the law or of philosophy. We might say those people of simpler minds. But what's the appeal? Paul says this. Would you lovingly just simply meet people at whatever level of development they are? Don't embarrass them. Accommodate them. Love them. And then that brings us back to verse 21 and the fourth skill that Paul models and explains for us, and that is the skill to adapt to the liberties of others. Read with me in verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law, he says here also, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. We're going to spend a little bit more time here because we live in a predominantly and increasingly secular culture. For most of us, these traits are the traits that are dominant in the circles that we run. It refers to those without law. That perhaps describes people who lived without any religious practices, without any religious trappings, without outward religious customs, rituals, or ceremonies. It could refer to them or they could be described as those who are giving themselves permission to not be obliged to place themselves under any systems that they've deemed morally or socially unnecessary. And yet we're called to adapt even to these. 
We're called to adapt to these liberties of others. But friend, this isn't about being worldly. Rather, it's about being effective in the world. The motive is to fit in and to assimilate with purpose. Not to compromise, but to reach, to connect with people. You see, sometimes the love of God is demonstrated by showing others that certain entanglements that they've believed to be essential to pleasing God are no longer necessary in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not necessary to live a vibrant and obedient relationship to God. Paul says it this way, again, to the church in Rome in chapter 11, verse 14, if by any means I may provoke his people, the Jews, to jealousy, those who are my flesh and blood, to save some of them. You see, he said, I'll go preach to the Gentiles. I'll let them see me amongst them, leading them to a vibrant relationship with God, hoping that out of the corner of their eye, they're noticing Paul leading those people to a great relationship with Christ. And they look over and say, I want me some of that. I'm provoked to jealousy. Their life seems to have a spiritual quality that I don't even have. Now, I'll share with you, as I mentioned, I came to know Christ at age 19. I graduated from the only Catholic high school in the city. And it was after my first year at UNM that God radically blindsided me and totally, blessedly interrupted this life by giving me life. But in my first month of knowing Christ, all of a sudden these new desires began to well up in me. My parents could tell you, it kind of freaked them out at first because they're like, what are you doing? They were not yet believers themselves. They came to know Christ weeks after I did. But they saw these new desires welling up within me to serve God. Seemingly out of nowhere. So as I'm reading my Bible, I was playing as often new believers play what we call Bible roulette. God, I don't know where to start reading, but I'm just going to crack it open and whatever pages it opens to, I'm going to read. Lo and behold, the Bible that I was given, my first Bible ever, constantly opened to Jeremiah chapter 1. The subtitle of chapter 1, Jeremiah called to be a priest. I was terrified. <laughs> I didn't want to be a priest. I enjoyed hanging out with a number of the priests at my high school. I really did. There were some fun guys. I didn't want to be one. I want to be married. I want to have children. I don't want to have to dress like that. And it wasn't until... The very week after I got saved, I found myself here at Calvary Church. And a few weeks after that, my dad and mom and my younger sister joined me. My dad recalls that when we walked into this building, we're thinking, it's not a church. It's a renovated indoor sports complex. And then the guy gets up to speak. He doesn't have any kind of robe or any frock on. He's actually got cool hair. And he starts to talk, and we're kind of waiting for him to stop talking so the priest could come out. And we're not really sure about what's going on with all these screens and lights, and just was so different. My dad tells me later, man, I thought they were too poor to afford a priest, so they just had to have anybody pop up there and speak. But as Pastor Skip faithfully taught us the Word of God, sitting right over there, remember it like it was yesterday. I'm sitting there just hearing God's word. And I've got this apple that's just rising up in my throat because I want to cry. Because I'm hearing truth that explains so much of life up to that point. And as I look over at my dad, I can tell him swallowing hard as well. And just like the experience of many of you, you walk out of here thinking, was I the only person in that entire auditorium of over 2,000 people that that guy was speaking to? You see, I want to highlight something. I would love coming to midweek service at the time as well. Pastor Skip would come out, just like he still does, sit on a stool. I noticed he was wearing blue jeans. I, know he, I noticed he was wearing athletic shoes, Converse All-Stars. 
I noticed he was wearing a graphic t-shirt, but it wasn't a religious t-shirt. It was just a cool graphic t-shirt. And he came out and he cracked open God's word and he taught not only by his mouth, but by his example. You see, he taught me that I didn't need a lot of the trappings that I had thought I needed growing up in order to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And that was done by his example. What he's done and what you all do in the places you work and in the homes that you live and in the neighborhoods that you live and what you do when we gather together like this from all different walks of life is we make Christianity normal as God intended because we're able to allow God through us to bring Jesus Christ into the normal everyday lives of the people that are in our circle that don't yet know him that we might be God's evangelist to them. Now, I don't want you to turn there because we don't have time. I'm simply going to refer to Acts chapter 17. And there's a great event in the life of Paul where he enters the city of Athens. And eventually, toward the latter part of chapter 17, he enters what's called the Areopagus, or what we now know as Mars Hill. And it was said of the city of Athens at that time that it was easier to find a god of the Greeks than it was even to find a man in the city. That's how plentiful their gods were. And as Paul begins to declare truth to them, you might find it very interesting that Paul did not quote Scripture to them at all. In fact, Paul quoted their own philosophers to them. He entered their world. Blogger Philip J. Long of this writes, quote, the first delusion that's in verse 28 of Acts 17 that states, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he goes on to say, and also some of our poets have said, for we are his offspring. Those two quotes are attributed to Epimenides, the Cretan. The poet Paul then also cited that same philosopher in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Long goes on to say the line, quote, in him we move and live and have our being, was pantheistic. But Paul spins it to them in the statement about God being our source of life. And he goes on further to say, the second citation found in that chapter, in verse 29, being then the children of God, is from Eratus, a Sicilian poet. Paul didn't quote scripture to them. He quoted their own philosophers. For us, this might be the equivalent of bringing Jesus to a TED Talk environment or to the Academy Awards, uh, the Oscars in film, or even the Grammy Awards. So, consider this. As much as those that we love and want to reach for Jesus Christ are going to perhaps stumble upon the unbelieving culture of our world, know this, that even if they're not looking for it, the culture is going to find them. And your experience might be mine where my three young daughters surprised me one day by listening to a vocalist, a musician named Billie Eilish. And of course, as a loving, concerned parent, I want to know who this Billie is. Where does she go to church? She doesn't. Yet. That's our hope and prayer. She doesn't yet. Well, what is she saying? Well, Billie Eilish, 18 years old, Five Grammy Awards at 18 years old, just recently. Two American Music Association Awards, all written by her and her brother. This is one of her more popular songs right now, Everything I Wanted. These are her words, the words of a modern-day philosopher or poet. She writes, she sings, I had a dream. I got everything I wanted. Not what you'd think. And if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare to anyone who might care. I thought I could fly, so I stepped off the golden, Golden Gate Bridge. Nobody cried. Nobody even noticed. I saw them standing right there. I kind of thought they might care. What a great conversation starter with your children. What a great conversation starter with the fan of Billie Eilish that may not yet know Christ, but... You might know enough of their philosopher to say, hey, let me ask you a question. If you got everything you wanted, what would that be for you? 
Start to get to know what's going on in their hearts. What is their heart seeking after? You might even ask them this question. Wow, that, you know, that young lady sounds like she feels unloved. Do you know someone who seems to feel unloved? They might even refer to themselves. So, let me try to bring this to a close. And I bring it to a close as we consider adapting even to the liberties of the secular culture that we live in, maybe even to the point of quoting their philosophers with a caution. And what is that caution? I can tell you this as a brother in Christ, also as a pastor here, and as I've mentioned to you before, uh, if the complaints are strong enough, if the accusations are big enough, they all end up on my desk. Gladly. I consider it a privilege. I really do. But I can tell you this, there's some people who would say, even with my reference to quoting a modern-day philosopher in order to try to enter the world of another for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it might make them feel a little uneasy. And that's okay. I've got answers for you if you need them. But I want to speak to the other side of things within the church, and that's where some of the greatest opposition, I might even say the most vitriolic meanness can come from fellow Christians, people within the church. And so to simply address that, let me read to you the words of C.S. Lewis in his 1948 book, God in the Dock, Essays in Theology, where he writes this, quote, he writes this of the hypersensitive, overly scrupulous, moral busybodies within the church. He says, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity, great word, right? It means his eagerness or excessiveness in desire. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. Then it'll finally back off, Right? But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult to be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on the level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or as those who never will to be classed with infants, imbeciles, or domestic animals. Don't be that. Don't be that. And can I just make a request? If you're going to be strong in your opinion or mean, please add your name and contact information so we can talk. And I say that because I want to win your heart. There are so many good answers for people's misguided zeal and misapplied zeal that if you just give us an opportunity, we can have a conversation as loving, respectable men and women. Please. So let me close. We're going to look at verses 27, uh, 24 through 27. And because of time, we're only able to extract one salient truth. Paul closes this passage by saying, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Therefore, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Win that soul. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do this to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, and he uses a mixed metaphor here of running a race and fighting in a boxing match. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I know where that goal line is. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I'm not shadow boxing. I know exactly where I want to hit. But I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I should become disqualified. What's the one thing I want to focus on here? Notice the opponent that Paul refers to. Notice his opposition to reaching his goal of winning others. It was himself. 
In order to accomplish this, he says, I discipline my body and I bring it into submission. He didn't say, I discipline those who are doing it wrong and I spank them into submission. It was all personal. It was himself. It was his own body, his own flesh. Friend, go all out in disciplining yourself to set aside everything that is optional, any liberty that you have in order to reach the ears and hopefully the hearts of the unreached. Friend, this will require self-sacrifice, self-denial, self-discipline. It requires an attitude that sounds like this. I'm not important. They are. As Pastor Eric shared with us recently, of a guy who had a shirt on the front, it says in big, bold letters, it ain't about you, exclamation point. And beautifully on the back of that shirt, it said, it ain't about me either. Now, for us, it is indeed about them to know Christ. A disciplined life is one where the mind controls the body. An undisciplined life is when the body controls the mind. May our mind control our bodies, even unto being bondservants for the sake of others. Let me end with this. It's one of my favorite Pastor Skip sayings throughout the decades that I've had the privilege of sitting under his amazing teaching. And that is to never forget that God reserves the right to use people that are different than you. Or God uses or reserves the right to use people that even disagree with you. And so as we think of this adaptability and as we look at how Paul was so adaptive to so many people in so many environments... Consider that God's people, both individually and corporately, are his multi-tool. A multi-tool is like a leatherman where it has a number of tools all packed up into one. And sadly, there are some in the church who consider themselves the sharpest edged blade and they sit in judgment of all who are different from them and they just simply view them all as corkscrews. That is, until there is a corked bottle that needs to be opened. You see, God has made and called some of his people to look like and serve as corkscrews because their lives can effectively open the ears and hearts of people that not even the sharpest blade could open without causing great damage, oftentimes even irreparably. Friend, we are a mixed multitude, a motley crew in the most beautiful sense. So on that note, let me close with these words from an early 20th century Scottish Bible teacher by the name of Oswald Chambers. And he says these words. When the Spirit of God has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts, we begin deliberately to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ's interests in other people. And Jesus Christ is interested in every man that there is. We have no right in Christian work to be guided by our affinities. This is one of the biggest tests of our relationship to Jesus Christ. The delight of sacrifice is that I lay down my life for my friend, capital F, Jesus Christ. I don't fling my life away, but I deliberately lay my life out for him and his interests in other people, not for a cause. And he goes on to close by saying, Paul spent himself for one purpose only that he might win men to Jesus Christ. Paul attracted to Jesus all the time, never to himself. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And Chambers says, I wish, in quoting Paul, that myself were even accursed from Christ for my brethren. And he goes on to close. What wild... What extravagant love this is. But when a man is in love, it is not an exaggeration to talk in that way. And Paul, indeed, was in love with Jesus Christ. And may we be as well. And may it be evidenced by our willingness to lay our lives down and adapt to those around us that we might gain their ear, to gain their heart, 
that God might gain their soul to Jesus Christ in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we have an assignment and some of us have many assignments. As we're praying to you, Lord, our mind's eye is going through the Rolodex or the photo album of those that we know, those that we've perhaps shunned or avoided, that you're calling us now to sidle up alongside, to enter into their world, to even perhaps hear what their own philosophers are saying, that we might create a touch point with them to be your evangelist to them. Lord, I have no doubt that we as your people and as your body can maximize our impact for the kingdom of God for all eternity if each and every one of us are willing, ready, and yielded to lay our lives down in the way that you modeled for us, Lord Jesus, and in the way that Paul's life modeled for us as well. For this great task, God, we know that we need to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would empower each of us by your spirit unto being the servants, the bond slaves to all for the sake of your great gospel. We ask this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and anyone who agreed said, Amen. 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 We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.